You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Maggie Nelson. Hello. Hello, Paul. Hello, Maggie. How are you? I am very well. All the happier to speak to you today. Thank you for taking this call. My pleasure. Are you? Do you record these calls? I do. Okay. I do. So we we are being recorded, okay, and right and, and okay. as of right now, and I I hope uh, um, it will be a pleasure for us to speak together, which I imagine it will be. Fantastic. What, what am I interrupting at this moment, apart from the fact that you were waiting for my call? What are you up to? I'm cleaning my house because when the kids go to school, there's like dolls and Legos and all kinds of things. And before I can work, I pick them all up. That's what I'm, I'm going to be doing while I talk to you. Oh, well, well um, how, how old are your children? Uh, I have a five, almost six-year-old son, and my stepson is about to be 13. And um, are, they, are they equally messy? Five-year-old is messier at the present time. <laughs> and so, so mornings after you take them to school are spent cleaning up. That's correct. And, but hopefully not for very. Oh, hopefully for just long enough that it looks neat enough that I can work. And and what will you get to? What what are you working at on at the present time? Oh, I can't go into don't, it. Don't 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 don't. I'm too superstitious. Don't. But, you know that uh, uh, you know Benjamin said that you should never talk about what you're working on, so you're you're following in good footsteps. I'm in good company. You're, I know it kind of kills the uh, every time you have to articulate something that's not yet in articulable form. It it actually does the work of like. Uh, I don't know, like um, constricting it for you or something. So I feel like I, I try not to. But so, um, so yeah, you, you, some kind of cultural criticism project of uh, you know of, of varying kinds. So well, the, 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 enough said. Enough said. You <laughs> know, as, as I was thinking uh, about our call, I I couldn't resist telling you that possibly the very first person I met when coming to, to this country from Europe, was Wayne Kirstenbaum. Oh, really? Because you met in college or grad we, school, Yeah, right? we, met, no. we met in graduate school. I was, uh, at, at that point, I was a graduate student in comparative literature at Princeton. And we, we met, and um, I, I, I think he must have been the first person I met the first week I was in this country. And the first conversation we had was um, about Roland Barthes and Proust. If you can imagine that, that was the very first thing we spoke about. Fantastic! What well, luck for you! But, I, I would think. Well, yes. Do you think, yes. Do you think it felt lucky at the time? Were you glad to be here? Um, I, you know, I, I was, I was 
thrilled to be to be studying here. You you may not know this, but I I was born in Houston, Texas, where okay. I I spent four very important days, a memory of which is slight. And then we 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 lived in in Mexico and then all over Europe. And wow. when I, and when I came to to this country, I came first hitchhiking, uh, because wow. because my father believed that any other form of travel was fairly immoral. And so um, when I arrived in this country and one of the first people I met was Wayne, it was real, real pleasure. And I remember we we spoke about a very small text of Proust called On Reading. Are you familiar with it? I don't know it, no. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's before La Recherche. And the first line is, he says, there are perhaps no days of our childhood that we have lived more fully than those we thought we didn't live, those we spent with a beloved book. Ah, very interesting. What, what does it conjure for you? Uh, guilt, because, <laughs> because A, I haven't read that, and then B, because I think I was not a very... Um, avid reader that one might expect that I was as a child and I don't <laughs> I don't know why that is. <laughs> so I think that my reading my childhood reading that mattered to me didn't really begin until high school. Um it's interesting that um, that this quotation of Proust should inspire guilt. Because in a way what 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 you're what you're saying is that you're you're looking back at yourself at that moment that Proust is describing of childhood and wishing that your past had been different? Well, I think I don't wish it were different so much, but that people often ask me when I was little what books meant something to me. And because I also teach, I read applications all the time when people describe, um, well, nowadays it's usually Harry Potter or something. It's not usually, you know, crime and punishment. But, but there's a kind of... Um, you know, I think I'm, I mean, I'm interested also in, I mean, because as we started talking about, since I have kids, I'm also interested in, you know, the fate of reading more generally with technology and things. So I just can't help bring to mind, you know, when you're reading that by Proust, just, it also is, sounds like the, 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 the beautiful sound of a childhood in which books are um, often a main event, which is not how it's, a lot of life runs these days for a lot of people. So, so many things come to mind. You know, when you, when you do read this little book, which is tiny, it's about a hundred pages long. It's about, it's called On Reading, and it was, and it was used by Proust as a preface to his translation of Ruskin, Sesame and Lilies, which itself is a book about reading. So it's On Reading, On Reading, if you will. And what, what Proust says just after that line, I, I quote it from memory and probably quite badly. He speaks about that moment when he was interrupted in his reading by his mother or his aunt or somebody saying, lunch is ready. And so he gets quite upset um, th that this is happening at that time. But you know, Maggie, what he remembers, which is so interesting, is not so much the book itself, than where he read it. Yeah, and interesting. Yeah. So the whole, yeah. the whole landscape of it. 
but but you you were saying I I do want to ask you a little bit more about that. The I mean it, it's grandiloquent uh, statements I I know, but when you say the 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 fate of reading as it is in our time with uh, Advent, the perpetual surrounding of technology, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. I think I just feel I'm 44 and I did not grow up with the internet and I didn't get email until I was in graduate school, I think my last year or something. So I think that, um, but so I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm just in an interesting spot where I watch now with my students that I teach and also my children of what the differences are of having the, these things. And I think that, I mean, actually, Eileen Miles was reading uh, last night, night before in L.A., and she was talking about, she's usually a great um, kind of proponent of technologies in a way that I never have been, and that's always been interesting to me. Um, but she was even saying at her reading that, uh, that there was a kind of relationship with objects where you used to go to an object for something like you needed to know what time it was so you went to a clock or a watch or you needed to take a picture so you went to your camera but that the kind of locatability of everything in the smartphone um, has made people kind of go to the smartphone for a lot of needs and then when they look at it they forget what they went to it for because it offers all these other things or it tells you you have an alert or there's a text and so your your brain is kind of um even when you go to it with a desire, that desire is then um, kind of quickly, uh, I don't know what the word is, like adumbrated or short-circuited or rerouted um, or just disrupted. Maybe like you're saying with Proust, maybe it's like the endless mother calling for lunch, but it's kind of, um, I think, that, and she was just saying that how that makes following through with a desire or a thought so much more difficult, you know, because you, you kind of never, um, it, it kind of dissipates before it ever got full flower. And I think that since writing books is essentially giving full flower to a desire, you know, a desire to investigate a particular subject, you know, you really need to figure out how to stick with it, you know, because everything else will compete for your attention rather than the book. And so I think it's just something that, um, I think about, you know, I mean, I think about, even though I don't do a lot of things online, I I mean, I don't do social media per se, but I do think about it just in terms of the fact that the site of writing, like for me, was always a typewriter in my youth. You know, now, of course, is the computer, and the computer, of course, has many things on it. So I think there's a similar dynamic, as Eileen was describing about. You know, um, I'm... I'm- I'm always brought back to, to this line, which, which haunts me of, of Simone Weil, where she says that attention is a form of prayer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess this is just a natural extension of the death of God that we have now. <laughs> we have the death of attention at the same time, you know. But, um, I mean, I think I can still pay attention. And actually, I was just writing a little piece about Fred Moten's um, new book, Black and Blur. And the piece I was writing ended up really being about reading because Fred's writing is difficult to um, read um, in an exciting way, but in a way that... that um, have you have you read much of his? You know, I have not, but but this is what 
is such a pleasure, both on these phone calls and in my daily life, is that, you know, people ask me if I miss teaching, and I say, oh my God, no, I, I right. keep, I keep, yeah, yeah. I keep learning. So no, t- yeah. tell me about this book and add it to my my yeah. my reading list, no, please. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic book. I mean, and all of Fred Moten's writing is, um, you know, he's so erudite, um, but the writing is also a kind of committed to a, a kind of layering of. Uh, both a layering in terms of laying down, I mean, he calls it rubbing or blurring, so he'll put a lot of different, um, you know, art pieces or historical cultural circumstances next to each other and kind of layer the essay up with them, so you're a little disoriented as to kind of, but it's part of the layering, and then secondly, the sentences themselves kind of implode or explode, with, like they, they have a, you know, kind of fugitivity of meaning. So it's a very, so reading Fred Moten, really calls my attention to reading, you know, in a way that I don't feel a lot these days. And, you know, and because it's so hard to understand, a lot of times you feel very dumb, which I really like as a feeling. Um, you, 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 did you say you really like it? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I agree. Um, yeah. in, in other words, difficulty and, and, and the text that is, or a, a, a work that is recalcitrant is actually in a strange way, pleasurable. Absolutely. And I mean, it has to be the right kind of making you feel dumb. Like, I don't need to feel dumb like the way that a dumb TV show makes me feel dumb. But like, if I feel like the work is actually doing something that is slightly or significantly above my capacity for cognition, like a Henry James sentence or something, um, you know, your, 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 your brain, I mean, uh, I was just actually, you know, Joan Richardson. I don't know if she read this yes. book about Wallace Stevens. I have not. And, yeah, but but yes. And in it, she talks about how Stevens was very transfixed by, well, actually, Jonathan Edwards far before him. But this idea that your that the brain is an organ, like your lungs or your heart or your gut or your skin, but that the way that it has sensation is through thinking. You know, and I thought that and. So I think that that was so compelling in this idea of kind of having your brain feel thinking, you know. And I think when you're reading something that exceeds your comprehension, you begin to feel your brain thinking. And I think that's a very exciting feeling um, because it's essentially a, it's essentially a sensorial, you know, it's essentially a sensation. It's a sensation of an organ, um, and uh, that is cool. <laughs> you know, um, at the at the very at the very beginning of Elaine Scarry's book on beauty, she has this one line that made me think of you quite deeply, which is, she says, she asks this question, what is the felt experience mm. of cognition? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that book I read quite a bit when I was writing, I think, Bluettes, this little book I wrote about the color blue, um, because I thought of that book as a book about beauty. Um, and I ended up, you know, fighting with her yeah. here and there um, because I'm always somebody who, I'm always somebody that wants to put uh, or wants to illuminate roadblocks on the way to what we think might give us good ethics just because it seems like 
things like the idea that beauty will lead us to ethical judgment seems difficult to me. It doesn't seem like that's what happens. Um, but I think that, you know, but I love her work and I love, you know, I, I love, um, I love that book as a, as a provocation and also just as a, um, a slim, a slim book, you know, a kind of slim treatise, just as a form, I, I think is a great form. So. But, but also the, the, the word felt experience of cognition. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It, it, yeah. Be, because you were talking about the organ that is a brain yeah. that, that gets pleasure from what, um, what, what makes, um, the, the very act of cognition difficult. So the the rub in some way is um, is pleasurable. I mean, I think this is something that, as a teacher, I've also began to wonder if this is like a, you know, a lot of students feel not pleasure, but they feel anger and defensiveness and um, frustration with that same sensation, you know, and therefore you have to kind of. Uh, you know, and I don't know if it's the thing that some people like, some people find pleasure in it, some people don't, or if it's the kind of thing that you have to learn to be, um, you know, have an appetite for because you become less threatened as you go along. But I think about it a lot because I think about this discourse about, you know, politics and people talking about the elites and the intellectual elites who are kind of, you know, who people are so angry at because they feel condescended to and that kind of more degraded political discourse. But I think about it a lot because I think, um, you know, what, what, how can you help, how can you help people get over the idea that things are trying to insult them when they're in fact just trying to represent interesting experiences of human thought and cognition, you know. I, I tend to think, uh, listening to you, that all it really takes for for students to recognize the, the pleasure in that in that pleasurable pain is yeah. to be is to be exposed to it. I agree. Um, I totally it, agree. And I think that once you read it once and you have all those negative feelings and then the next time you read it you're kinda like, Oh I got this even though I don't get it this time, it's not like you're encountering a foreign object. You're encountering it, you know, again. And and then if you encounter it again, then you probably really begin to feel like you um, don't have to reproduce the same reactionary um, uh, feeling you you had before. So it's very interesting. You know, I agree. You used the about so many things. I, well, you 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 use the word that is, is very much part of of. Uh, my, my daily vocabulary, which is, which is the word appetite. And, um, uh. there, you know, here you are, this, this writer, um, now teaching. And so a lot of what, what you do goes through the very act of talking yeah. and of speaking. And I tend to think, Perhaps because of what I do as a as a yeah. profession, I chat for a living, as it were. Yeah. I I tend to think that um, a lot of what what happens happens because we are in conversation with. Um, you know, Adam Phillips famously say, says that when we speak to each other, things fall out of our pockets, and I I I love that. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. Yeah. 
I just so I, I just adore that that line and I I keep thinking about it when when I yeah. take take to the stage with someone because yeah. I, I think of my own pockets and how terribly messy they are to come back to the messiness you were talking about at the very beginning there is a line and i'm wondering how it would speak to you and by the way all these lines are not they're not quotations because i want to show off the quotations but but because i I know you do i we, we share that but because they are kind of a signpost on on the way of of my life and I know also of yours. There's a line by Tristan Tsara where he says that thought is made in the mouse. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're a writer, you... I mean, I love that about the pocket, obviously, because I also love the... Um, you know, kind of history of Bachelard or whoever, you know, writing about these spaces, these enclosed yeah, spaces. The, the and, cor- um, corners and, and, yeah, and exactly, n- nooks, know, and nooks and crannies. And, and yes, I adore that book, the, the Poetics of Space. Exactly. But I also think of it as kind of like we spend our days, you know, each of us idiosyncratically collecting you know, reading things that are of interest to us or following our lines of flight, as it were. And then when we get into conversation, what is so great is that, you know, we do, we kind of, um, you know, kind of like we, we show each other our hand. We're like, well, here's what I got. You know, what do you... Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, like, you know? like a magician, I, nearly. That, you know, it's so exciting also because I get kind of, um, you know, I get, I get tired of my own... Um, I get tired of my own. I mean, I, I like researching according to my own interests, but I don't always know, you know, our own interests are also, I mean, this is also a very political issue, like when you're trying to get your colleagues or something to diversify what they teach or something, people will say, oh, well, that's just not my interest or, oh, that's just not my field or, oh, that's for somebody else to do. And I think that the kind of endless, you know, necessity of each other enlarging each other's canons um, is, you know, profound and, and, and also very exciting, you know. So I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm always, I mean, it's what, you know, like I was saying with Fred Moten about the rubbing, you know, part of what he's so interested in is how unlike or supposedly unlike or not even unlike, but just disparate things behave when they rub against each other. And I'm I'm very interested in that as well. And quotations, of course, are part of that, you know. Well, well, um I, I'm tempted to to use yet another quotation, and I will, though I have many other things to to say. And quotations sometimes can be a, a, a mode of not saying what we quite think, but using somebody else to to see what we might be thinking. And this is wonderful line by someone who matters to you greatly, I believe, Annie Dillard, where she she quite simply says, and it's been quoted many times, but. I don't know if you've ever commented on this quotation where she simply says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Annie has written so much about, I mean, one of her most famous essays, I think it's called Living Like Weasels, where she says, she reminds the reader, you know, we can we can take vows and live any way we want, you know, you can take a vow of chastity and poverty of, you know, and this kind of, um, I mean, when she was my teacher, too, you know, I think that she, she would often say things like, what you put, you know, be careful what you choose to put in, because what you choose to put into your mind will become you, you know, and I, 
I thought all that was very puritanical when I was younger because I was trying to pollute myself as much as possible the way that you do when you're young. <laughs> and then, you know, I think now, of course, that I'm older and now I, as, as per we're talking about, about internet and other things. Yes, and, yes, of course, all this comes so to my mind. What you put in does become you. And so you have to, when you become more conscious of that and you, you know, you, you make more decisions about what you want to, um, you know, make up your days and which of course in turn makes up your life and also makes up your work because what you put in will be what comes out in your work. So a lot of my books, people will say like, what kind of research did you do for this? And I'll be like, well, you know, everything you put in, in your life ends up being in the pot, you know, as possible use. So it kind of, it really matters what, what, what you're drawing upon, you know? Well, you, another way of, of putting it, I, I feel, is that you bring to your writing your body. Uh-huh. Right. And everything is done and seen and ingested and rejected and suffered and enjoyed and, and all that, you know. You know, one of... Uh, there are people who believe, and I think that, I mean, Thoreau said, you know, the question is not whether you... Um, it's not what you look at, but whether you see, you know, and I think that there is a kind of, I mean, there are people who believe, I mean, this is how we change from having a kind of, you know, you know, a kind of uh, content-oriented canon to a critical thinking-oriented, uh, you know, idea about gaining skills, but, you know, there are people who believe that it's, it's the skills of analysis or seeing and not the object of what you're looking at that matters, and, you know, I think it's probably both, you know, I don't think it's one or the other, but... Yeah. But I interrupted you. No, 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 no. Uh, that's the point. Is that right. uh, we, we 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 arrive at a point where um, I don't quite know quite know what to say say next, except that I'm I'm really <laughs> I'm really intrigued by by this notion of people asking you about your research when I think. The, the the better question might be um which obsessions are you revisiting uh-huh, um, uh-huh. and and what you know the, there's this wonderful line in in a very early book by Bart on on the the great french historian michelet where he says that he he wants the way he wants to write this book is he wants to come up with an organized web of obsessions yeah that seems right and it seems to me that um, one could also say this about Maggie Nelson, that there is a, a an organized web of obsessions and obsessions which re-emerge. And that might, you know, that might be a source also, as you said a little bit earlier, of fatigue, because you say to yourself, oh, there it is again. Right, 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 yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I know a lot of people who, I mean, I, I feel like I know a lot of people who are very interested in the kind of psychological rubric of obsessions, um, and I, I, I kind of am interested in it. Like, I think I, I can kind of go there, but I, I guess, you know, to me, just as felt experience, I don't usually think of it so much as a, a psychological phenomenon like a compulsion as much as like a visual issue like a lens you know where whereby like if you're writing something or researching something you just kind of put on that melding mask you know that like colors the world 
world was that particular. I mean, in the blue book, you know, I love that line by John Ashbery where he says, um, an interview, an interviewer asks him what he, what he, what he thinks his poetry does, and he says, I think it puts a blue rinse on the language, which is just oh. one of my favorite comments. Oh, ever, yes, you know? yes. A blue rinse on the language, you know, where, where you're kind of rinsing something in a particular, in a particular lens that you're seeing, um, the world in. But I like that because as opposed to an obsession, which kind of seems like it, anyway has this rhetoric of like, you know, hounding you and kind of addiction or compulsion. It's more like a lens of something that you also choose to, you choose to wear for a while, you know, and you, and you kind of choose in a, in an ecstatic way to say, this is my topic, you know, and the way that, you know, love organizes, you know, the way love or interest organizes reality, but that you also admit it's going to pass, you know, um, which I think is great as well, because it would be very, difficult to be stay obsessed with the same things but but um Never. yeah no it's 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 fascinating to 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 hear you talk about the word obsession in this way because then obsession becomes something that you well yeah you are obsessed by you need you have a compulsion but there's yeah. certain but there's certain themes that i mean i know it in my own life um, yeah. as as i grow older some of uh, the th some of the interests I had as a younger man yeah. have come back with a force that now I can inhabit better because I've become older, such as the notion of what it means to become older. I'm 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 really you know I'm really um, I'm really. Uh, I, I'd say obsessed by it. And I remember in a conversation I, I once had with Paul Auster, this is one line uh, by the poet George Oppen um, that I think is fantastic, where uh, uh, Auster says, as my friend George Oppen once said about getting old, what a strange thing to happen to a little boy. And, and, and you know, of course, that. isn't that fantastic? And, and, I'm, and I'm really you know, so interested by it and so interested by it in, you know, in, in regards to so many things. One of them is to reading because, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you know, how, how do we read and how do we reread the, and which texts do we, or which books do we, do we remain faithful to? Which, which ones yeah. still, and I, I wonder if this is something that, that, that haunts you. I think haunt is better than obsess. Or maybe haunt isn't good. Maybe maybe you will you will unravel the meaning of haunt and say that that isn't quite quite the right word either. It depends on the project. I mean, I think I have been haunted. I mean, I think that when I worked on books about my aunt's murder, that was kind of more of a haunting, and that there's disturbing material that. I, mean, I think different material works on people differently, you know, we're, we're, which is neurological too, you know, I mean, things that incite fear or trauma or um, uh, horror are going to have a different effect on you than, than, than works that inspire other, other affects. So, but I think that, I don't know, I mean, I think that you're right, I mean, I think that that aging is a spectacular adventure uh in part because i don't know what you said about reading is just very compelling in terms of noticing what things hold and what things don't hold and i've always been very interested in 
the kind of subjective experience of art. And I think now I'm more, now I'm more also very interested in the subjective experience of kind of wisdom and the difficulty of, um, the difficulty of any person communicating something that they feel that they know to a body or a person who has not yet found out that knowledge for themselves, which is, of course, a description of parenting. <laughs> you know? Yes, and, yes, and 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 what and, and and what do we, you know, what do we, what do we, and how do we pass it on? Um, but but what are we passing on? Yeah. Um, and I, I would, I would tend to believe that the best thing we can pass on is appetite. I totally agree, and I also think that one has to pass things on. I mean, this is also true with political movements and and the way that um, you know the, the moment of disillusionment for a lot of young people comes when they realize that what they've been working for is not going to be achieved in their lifetime, you know, and none of us are going to live to see the end of racism. You know, none of us are going to live to see um, uh, a solid footing that we feel as though, you know, the human species might continue on the planet and the climate that can hold us. I mean, none of us are going to live to see this. I don't think anybody alive right now is going to live to see the answer to those questions. So I think that, you know, the appetite also has to be that you impart, I mean, two things. I guess there's appetite, which is the kind of, you know, Beckettian sense of yes. keeping going, yes. the knowledge of failure. And then secondly, it has to also be um, a kind of temporal complication whereby you realize as a teacher or a parent or a human that whatever, the things that are said to you or things that you hear or the quotations that you, Paul, are telling me now, they're going to, that they, they, they may land at other times and places that are beyond our control, but that the transmission is never um, temporally linear, per se, you know, and that, that, but that's not a reason not to keep doing it. It's just a reason to understand that it's more complicated the way that, I mean, I think a lot about, I was talking to a friend of mine the other night about being a sober person, like not drinking, and the way that when we got sober, all the people we've met from like, you know, zero to your age of sobriety, you realized kind of unconsciously that you'd been keeping track of them. Like, oh, that person said that they were sober and that person said they were sober. So that when the time for your sobriety came, you realized that you had all these people whose messages at the time to you were meaningless, but that, they, but that you had been holding them for the time of life when they were going to be, you know, vitally necessary for you to keep living. And I think that that is very true of many things, you know. You, you, you said earlier that uh, when when Annie Dillard was was your teacher, she she warned you or cautioned you um, mm -hmm. in terms of what you you fill your mind with. Yeah, and I think it's probably something that you couldn't quite hear at that moment in the way she may have meant it or heard it, as you said, as kind of prudery or puritanism but in fact she was saying something possibly much deeper and before the advent of of the internet and now with with this knowledge and and some aging that may lead to some form of wisdom um we hope 
um, uh, what 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 now fills fills you um, with with pleasure and delight what what do you what do you now read or see whether it's it's in terms of books or writers or a certain poem or a certain movie i'm i'm curious what what you find at this moment compelling <laughs> that's a very good question <laughs> that's a very good question because i think that um uh Did you interview Carl Ulrich Nelskard when I, he was? I I I I I did not, um, though I hope to Carter someday. Did I write at the library? Yeah, he he did, but it not. it wasn't me, but uh, it was Jeffrey Eugenides. But, um, of course, but okay. yeah, but but um, I I know him a little bit, and I I did have a phone call with him, as I am with you. Oh, we were just I just was doing a conversation with him in Norway, and he said something I thought was so great, which was that. Um, someone was asking him about his book Autumn and about the My Struggle series and about his kind of endless curiosity about the minutiae, you know, about plastic bags and the way they move in the wind or about, you know, whatever it was, you know. And he said something kind of surprising where someone said to him, like, how do you um, continue to be so curious about such small things? And he said... He said, you know, something to be effective, like, well, the other side of the, uh, the other side of that is a, the admission that I'm totally not. I'm, you know, that the age, my curiosity decreases and my excitement about small things decreases. And he was saying the writing is the practice by which you continue to enliven, you know, your sense of curiosity and attention. And that's what the writing practice does, you know, but that the, but that the, the specter of it is that you're not, that you don't care as much, you know, and I think having small children, and, you know, it's a cliche, but to see, you know, how elated they can be by, you know, a berry on a stick for, you know, two hours um, is, you know, I think it, it it's always haunting because you're both ecstatic through them that they're having such a great time with this little berry, and you're also thinking, I must be dead inside because <laughs> I'm excited through you, but I don't care about berries anymore, you know, but I think that's why... Um, Did you go and see Kalov's exhibition of Munch? That's what we were, yeah, we were there 
it was Ben Lerner and Laurie Anderson and myself. Oh gosh! There for the for the closing of that exhibition, doing some panels and talks and stuff. So it was a great time, you know. Because he spoke to me a little bit about that that Munch exhibition he was putting together, and yeah. and subsequently I started to look at at a lot of Munch that I didn't know, and and truly somehow very deeply moved. Uh, though so much of what moves me is is less through through my eyes looking at a painting than hearing something or reading something. But for you, yeah. the, the pleasure of the eyes is is as great. Um, it depends, you know. It depends. I mean, I think that um, when you're younger, I mean, my partner Harry, I can remember talking about you know, seeing a red plastic box when he was about like 10 or 12 years old in the museum that kind of, he decided right then and there to be an artist just by the way that this red plastic box was. Really, really, how extraordinary. And I think like, I don't have that kind of, um, that's kind of like the proverbial Barry I was mentioning. Like, I don't, you know, I think things pop like that when you're, when you're younger in a certain way. You know, so art, you know, art doesn't do that as much for me anymore but that's why i say that when it does um you're 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 taken you're you know and and it, i mean for for harry it seems that that red box was <laughs> was there before it's as if it is recognition in some way yeah and he's tried to find it he's googled it for <laughs> he's tried to find it Googled red plastic boxes. <laughs> really, you know, really. Kind of, but yeah, because it's like he wants to. I mean, he figures. I mean, I think he may have found out what it was, but you know, he was like, it must have been. He grew up in Chicago at the Chicago Art Institute. You know, in the years of 1966, 1975, like surely I can find out what this box was. You know, but I think that I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, back to Proust and these kind of talismanic objects that you know bring us back bring us back to 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 a space you know Proust in that same book says something magnificent and i think he says it in la recherche also that the first edition of a book is not the first edition but the first edition in which we read it uh-huh interesting yeah yeah that's utterly true i think so that you know the 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 i mean we remember so clearly and i i don't think it's just sheer nostalgia i think it's just lived experience and it's lived experience very much as uh, you know what what scary said as the felt experience of cognition uh, an embodied an embodied cognition not one that is you know pure of of sentiment but that actually is filled with with feeling yeah, I don't know. I mean, all these people who talk about the cerebral as being kind of devoid of feeling, I don't even know. I don't know what that it's, means, Maggie. I think like it's all just like a fake, I think it's just like a fake meme or something. I, I don't even know anybody. <laughs> I, I, I think it maybe it might be an academic discipline or, or a way of getting tenure, but it seems just so strange. Yeah, I don't even know anybody in academia who feels that way because, you know, academia is not like a, a pile of pleasures. So the people that, the people that have devoted their lives to it, devote their lives to it because at some point, if they became a Joy scholar or Audre Lord scholar or whatever, they were deeply, deeply moved and transfixed by their object of study, you know, um, and that usually remains for them, you know, so. 
but you know you didn't you didn't quite answer my my question about what you return to um what what you what you what you spoke about instead and we can leave it like this but yeah, yeah. I, you you spoke instead of what it means to be um to be overcome or to be immersed i mean mm-hmm. b- and and i'm i'm wondering can you name um the last few moments you've had where you have had that that feeling from something the feeling of being of being over overcome with pleasure with what you were reading or what you were seeing yeah. well i really really liked uh a few different art exhibits i've seen in recent years i really liked um i really liked uh theaster gates had an exhibit of um in la that i thought was fantastic and i was very overcome by his this kind of poetry project that he was doing. I think that um, there's an artist named Rebecca Coitman who had a show in L.A. that I found profoundly moving. And then also um, Mark Bradford's uh, work I find very moving. And I think what I was noticing, though, in all three of these cases, which is maybe this is like what you, what do you return to, is that I've, you know, I wrote a book about abstract painting in the 50s, and yeah. I've always had a, a kind of strong interest in abstraction um, yeah. and in formalism, and I'm also a person who's always been kind of interested in, in, in politics of various kinds and in literature, so I think that I find very interesting what Mark Bradford has called social abstraction um, as a kind of genre for his paintings where they're often in an abstract idiom, but the title or the genesis is located in some kind of social reality. And I, I think that that has always been kind of an obsession for me. So I think I keep I keep responding to it when I see new iterations of it in the public sphere, if that makes sense. And how? Um there's a there's a line by Melina Mercuri, where she says, "Death does not scare me; not being loved does." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm I'm I mean I I, I hear you I, I hear you react, but I'm wondering what this conjures. Dying. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, mean, I think that I, you know, I'm not done with being afraid of death. I don't think, well, <laughs> I don't that, think anybody, anybody is necessarily. But um, well, Maggie, um, on on that note, <laughs> on the on the note of not yet being done, uh, not yet um, having warded away the the fear of death. I think I I just want to thank you for for speaking with me. I, j- I just feel there's so many more things, so many more threads, so many more hauntings, obsessions, or just appetite and interests to follow. And I, I hope we will have a chance soon. I really do too. You're so great, and you're such a fantastic talker, which I hold in very high esteem. High talkers. So. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you, and 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 let let us speak soon again then. Okay. Take care, Paul. T- bye bye. 
The Other People with Brad Listy podcast is a free weekly program featuring in-depth, inappropriate interviews with today's leading authors. You can hear me in conversation with everybody from George Saunders to Cheryl Strayed to Hilton Niles, Susan Orlean, Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Franzen, Maggie Nelson, Brett Easton Ellis, Otessa Moshveg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and the entire archive is available for free. That's hundreds of conversations with great writers, uncensored. Go get it. Visit otherppl.com and follow the show on Twitter at otherppl. (laughs) 